You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Mama's Talking Loud. I'm Jessica Rush. And I'm Kara Cooper. Today's guest is an Emmy Award-winning journalist, radio host, podcaster, writer, and actress. We are pretty sure there is nothing she can't do. She joins us today amidst the run of her off-Broadway one-woman show, Approval Junkie, based on her memoir of the same name, to share how it's never too late to find your purpose. Here's our conversation with Faith Saley. Faith, welcome. We are so happy that you are here. Good morning. I, I am so happy, and I, I'm, I have to stop myself from from fangirling. I mean, you know, I'm like the biggest jazz hands Broadway fan. So the fact that I get to talk to both of you is so exciting to me. So thank you. Well, thank you for joining us, for being well, here. We're super excited. I watch you on CBS Sunday Morning and listen to you on NPR well, or any number of the many things that you do. <laughs> so, and, and we might end up walking by each other on the street, Jessica. Yes. Yes. We're in the hood. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, when we start out, you, as you know, because you've listened, we always ask about your kids for you to tell us about your kids, because in our world, we don't often get asked that. So will you please share with us about your children? Yeah, they are preposterously big now. Um, this happens, doesn't it? They yes. grow up. They get yeah. breaks things. Um, my son, Augustus, oh, I'm glad you asked because I just realized next week is his half birthday. Mm. And we do half birthdays in our house. I make, I, I usually make a Coca-Cola cake and cut it in half, <gasps> which is easy to do because it's a bunt. You can cut a bunt Aww. in half easily. Um, you you have a, a look of recognition, Jessica. Is this because you I, grew up in Texas? You know Coca-Cola cake? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, Wait, to, you, I was like, what is a Coca-Cola cake, Kara? I mean, it is it is some buttermilk, marshmallow, Coca-Cola, chocolate goodness. And yeah. I don't if you're uncomfortable with the word moist, you just don't want to go near this cake. <laughs> some people don't like that word. I like that word. <laughs> That um, is true. I'm going to make you one. I'm going to make you one. <gasps> Seriously. There will be somehow. I really, I want to try it. Delivered to you. All right. Um, I grew up in Atlanta. So that is, that is why that enters my life. Um, so my son turns not nine and a half next week. And my daughter would tell you that she is not seven. She's seven and a half. Um, my son is All Augustus right. and my daughter is Minerva. And in my show, Approval Junkie, I actually have a little line saying why we named our daughter Minerva. Buy your tickets and go find out. <laughs> so you have to come and see it. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't mean to make that such a spoiler. It's uh, my my uh, my husband is a is a uh, ancient Greek and Latin scholar, not professionally, but you know, ac- academically, and uh, and we were 
praying for her. He's Jewish. I'm, I was raised Catholic, but we light candles anywhere we go. And I was praying for her when I was like 10 weeks pregnant and found out I was having a girl and we were in Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome oh. and, and, and in Piazza della Minerva. Um, and we thought that's, it's a beautiful name. It's, she's the Roman equivalent of Athena. So the goddess of arts and wisdom. Well, I think I mean, that's perfect. That's like your, I feel like that's like the, the meeting of your minds, right? You're yeah. like this artist, this actress, but you're a, you're a scholar and a journalist and, you know, a, a finder of facts. So that's all those things meshed together. And, you know, my husband is a chief strategy officer, which, whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah. You're um, talking to that? two actors here. We yeah. don't. <laughs> Same CSO, but um, but the goddess Minerva slash Athena is also is also the goddess of war and strategy. So it it just it covers all the bases. It's fascinating. I love it. I love it. I love hearing origin stories of how names come to be and how we as parents choose, you know, these these monikers for our for our kiddos. You know, it's really meaningful. And my kids have a hyphenated last name, which mm-hmm. is my last name first. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So that if there's ever a prescription and they can't fit the whole name, my kids have my last name <laughs> on the bottle. Well done. Um, Smart. And, I like that. Yeah. And that's like, like I, I suspect you as well are raising very progressive feminist children. But I love that, you know, my my kids' names precede them when it comes to how kind of equitable and and feminist our family is. I think that's awesome. You I know, I mean, I it's, I think the say it's very similar with Elliot being a girl, you know, and as opposed to her, you know, her name is such a sort of gender neutral name now and didn't used mm-hmm. to be, but naming her Elliot, it always, whenever people say just yesterday, I met a stagehand and his name's Elliot. I said, Oh, I said, that's my daughter's name. And he was like, Oh, <laughs> You know, he said, I've never <laughs> met a girl named Elliot. I mean, he's an older man. And I said, yeah, that." And he's like, I like that. I like it. And it's always lovely to sort of have that. People are always like, that's really, yeah, I like that. That's cool. It keeps people on their toes. Like mm-hmm. every, I feel like every time you can sort of sub, subvert gender stereotypes. And I, and I just went out. I took my stage management team out for, for some drinks um, last night. And I told them, and you, you, y'all must be used to this when being in the theater more often than I am. But at our first rehearsal, everybody went around and said their pronouns. And look, pronouns aren't new to me. Plenty of people have them in their signatures. But in my daily professional life, like we don't, we don't, I, we don't express our pronouns explicitly, right? Maybe it's because I've worked with people at Sunday Morning for a dozen years, and same with NPR. I, I know people's pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was so it was so wonderful. It was so caretaking to because there were plenty of people on our whole approval junkie crew and team who are non-binary. And and grandma here was like, wait a minute, you can have a she and they pronoun? Explain that to me. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I just that's new in our world too, though. We didn't used to do, I yeah. mean, that's all just sort of and that's um what's happened with the movement and with people just sort of waking up and being more uh aware of the diversity within ourselves. Because w- in 2019, when we started Tina, we we did go around and say our pronouns. That was the very first mm-hmm. time I ever did that. So it's not we haven't been doing it for a long time. It's new to us too. <laughs> and there seems like, you know, I, I've, I'm, I just finished hosting um, this podcast for Audible Originals called Broadway Revival about, 
about what happened during the shutdown for so many artists and, and people in theater and what it's like to return. And so many people talked about the, the I don't know if this is your experience, the gentleness of returning, mm-hmm. like not just inclusive, like, hey, what are your pronouns? But how are you feeling? Does your body feel safe going to and from the theater? Uh, like my, our tech rehearsals were not a 10 out of 12. I was there for eight hours. Yeah. My director was like, no, I'm not going to work you harder than that. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Just a real sense of like um, global self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's a big shift. And I think the people who have been in the industry for a really long time are like, this is really different. (laughs) Like it does feel different. And then for the younger people, they're like, no, this is the way it always should be. You know what I mean? There's, um, I think the next generation has such a different viewpoint on how to move through the world. Whereas those of us who are a little bit older have been like, no, just nose to the grindstone, put your head down. Things Walk uphill both ways that, in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like things are happening around us that aren't okay, but just keep going, just keep going. Whereas these younger people are like, no, no, that's not okay. You had a really interesting journey to motherhood. And we want to t- touch on it just a little bit. You did a segment on CBS Sunday Morning about it, but we've only spoken to one other person that did this, that froze their eggs. So can you tell only us a little other? bit about all of that? I'm evangelical about it. I feel like that will be, I I don't even know if my daughter will have a bat mitzvah, but I'll be like, (laughs) congratulations, here's a certificate to freeze your eggs when you're 18. I feel like it is, I feel like it is the key to any young woman's happiness and liberation. Even if you don't know if you ever want to have kids, it's, it's, so I decided I was married, um, way too young at age 34. And um, I think any, look, y'all, I think anyone who gets married before 40 or has kids before 40 is just a baby having babies. I just, <laughs> I, I like, because I didn't have my kids till I was 41 or 43, that's all I know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they came exactly when, when they should have for the kind of parent I want to be and the life experiences I can bring to them. Um, and the gratitude right? Like not just in being able to have them in my forties, but being able to have them with this man, with my husband and not my husband, which is what I call my first husband. Um, and, and like, God bless them. And like, you know, all of that challenging journey with that marriage made me grateful for what I have now, but I was going through my divorce and I was 39 and I was seeing a fertility doctor because I was like, I'm doing this. I don't know how. I'm done waiting for somebody else. I had a plan to to move to DC to live in the lower part of my brother and his husband's townhouse. I was like, I, I this is just this is gonna happen somehow. I can commute to work. And um and my fertility doctor, who at that point had done a surgery on me when I was 38, um, to she she did all these tests, like, hmm, why haven't you been pregnant ever? Um, and like, let's rearrange your uterus. Mm -hmm. So she did a surgery on me and my brother, brother, David is the one who took care of, I mean, I don't have a mom. I don't have a sister. I didn't have a husband. My brother, David came up from DC and took care of me and bought me the granny panties to wear after surgery. And then he took me downtown to Macy's to sit on Santa's lap and ask for a baby. 
Um, which it works, by the way. If you yeah. it, like, if, if you need to believe in Santa, it, it works. Um, so uh, when so the same doctor who is like half scientist, half fairy godmother, Dr. Maureen Moomji, she was like, "Have you ever thought of freezing your eggs?" And I just thought that ship had sailed. Like I'm, I, I thought I was old at 39. Um, and by the way, now that I'm 50, I'm like amazed at how young I am. Um, and, and so. <laughs> I was 39, and when she said that that was an option, I was like, uh, yeah, let's, let's do it tomorrow. And the kind of shift in, so I was, I was dating, I was dating a lot, like not seriously, but I was, I was on this plan to become a single mother by choice, dating a lot. And then I, I truly think that when I decided to freeze my eggs and kind of become that self-possessed and, and take control of my future in that way, everything shifted in the universe because my first date with my husband was the night before I started the egg freezing process. And like, he texted me on a Blackberry, hello, <laughs> 2010, um, the, you know, the morning after our first date. And he was like, you know, you know, Hey, what are you doing today? And I was like, I'm gonna, I, I'm just going to tell him I had my Blackberry under the table at the NYU fertility orientation. And I was like, I'm at a, at a, um, orientation for freezing my eggs. And this was back before there were appropriate emojis to, right. to respond to someone you just started dating who told you she's freezing her eggs. <laughs> so he just did one of those, like, you know, you, whatever you use on the keyboard to do a, like an open mouth. Yeah. Right. Like splash. <laughs> and like, other than that, he was unflinching and we, our courtship was like timed around shots and, um, you know, pelvic rest. And when we got married merely a year later, because um, that's what happens when you date, when two people are 39 and you meet each other and you're like, this, this is it, we're doing it. Um, I told him in my wedding vows, I knew you were the one when you let me put my syringe in your refrigerator. <laughs> um, and it's true. Like, what kind of guy is just totally okay with that? Um, but what's really interesting is that I, our son, Augustus, was conceived naturally. Um, after, uh, 11 months after we started dating, I, I got pregnant, um, naturally, uh, as my friend Danny, I was shooting a pilot while I was dating John and my friend Danny, the producer knew that I was dating a, a man who was a member of the tribe, um, and, and announced to the cast and crew that I was engaged in the Jewish semen acquisition project <laughs> or JSAP. <laughs> <laughs> and and he would yell during the shoot, JSAP, ASAP. <laughs> so apparently JSAP worked. And as I say in my show, Jewish semen is magic. And um and and I got pregnant, like John and I got pregnant. Um, well, I got pregnant, he helped. Um, I had a miscarriage. Mm. Then I tried, this is all this is all when we were just dating. Um, two weeks after my miscarriage, uh, he proposed to me. And then that summer, as we're quickly, we have three months to plan a wedding in Rome, uh, we try some artificial insemination, because why not? So that didn't work. Then I had a chemical pregnancy, which oh. you may or may not be. Mm -hmm. That's sort of like, they say you can't be sort of pregnant. Well, you can. Yeah. And then as we are going to Rome to get married, I find out I'm pregnant again naturally. And, and our my fertility doctor is like look i need you to have low expectations like you might have a miscarriage on your honeymoon and that's okay because we have ivf planned for when you get back and i didn't have a miscarriage on my honeymoon and we went to vespers all over italy and when we came back we saw a heartbeat on the ultrasound 
Um, and I had my son at 41 and then went back to the frozen eggs to get my money's worth, did IVF, had a miscarriage. And then, um, and then we, Minerva is, is my little, is my lab baby. <laughs> as we like to call her. Um, that was, she was, she was uh, the product of one of my 18 frozen eggs. Wow. Sorry. You thought that would be a short story. No, no, no. I love it. And I love that you go ahead. I was pregnant five times in three years and there was never as devastated as I was by the miscarriages. I have to say, I, I had so much faith in both faith and God and the universe. Um, and, and, and in science. And I, I, I never thought I wasn't going to become the mother that I wanted to be. And, and maybe that was naive, but I'm so lucky. I mean, it's an incredible story, an incredible journey. And even in your retelling of it, you can hear that you never lost your faith. Like you can hear that even though there were these bumps along the road, you knew it was going to happen. But I, going back to the beginning of how you opened it, I, this thought that freezing our eggs, it's like, it's like the ultimate feminist movement we could do because it takes away this thing that yep. makes us unequal or yep. in society's eyes, unequal to the men in this in in society. And it takes away that pressure to find a husband or find a partner or figure out how you're going to have kids before you're old and, you know, unable. I mean, I, I just think that that's such a... That's exactly as, right. It's, yeah, it takes like away I, the urgency. Yeah. And it allows you to pursue an incredible career like you have pursued. And that's something that we talk about so much in our industry as, as women and as, as people that are, 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 our youth is of the utmost importance in our industry. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a fact. And, and, and that dividing line before, before motherhood and ap- after motherhood is a defining line in our industry. And to take away kind of that that pressure of it and to be able to do it later in life and to also take away the need to balance a career and also this heavy, heavy, like the most important thing we can do in this world, right? Is, is procreate and, and, and bring forth the next generation and raise the next generation, like to, to divide and conquer. It's just such a, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Not rational, but it's just so Oh my gosh, my brain is not working. That's motherhood for you right there. I'll tell you what, that's, that's what that know, is in this moment. I would add that, yes, I mean, by the way, if you hear a siren, that's because, yes, I do live in New York. Yes. So, so just if you're listening, this is real. It's not sound effects we add in. Um, uh, should, should I pause? No, it's all right. No? no? Okay, wow. Y'all yeah. keep it really real. We do. <laughs> You know, something you just said, Kara, was that like the most important thing we do is is become parents. And and yes, and in the spirit of improv, um, I am also so unbelievably fulfilled by the work I do, the that that creativity, that kind of productiveness that I don't they're not even mutually exclusive. Like no one's making me choose between being all, yeah. all that I am professionally and being a mother. And what I think freezing one's egg and sort of harnessing all the control you can about your own fertility proactively, it allows you to, to do both. 
And, and no one should make apologies for that. No one should have to set her dreams aside while focusing on becoming a mother. I agree completely. And I figured <laughs> so out the true. word practical. Practical. <laughs> it's so go. practical. And, like and it's I, the practicality. Exactly. And and yes, uh, let's also, while we're using the P word practical, it's also, I am also privileged that I could afford it. So Absolutely. let me, let me put that out there. Like that was like, I was 39. I wasn't paying for braces or school <laughs> or clothes. I was like, what I'm going to spend my money on right now is freezing my eggs. Um, but I will also say, and I guess I'm just unbelievably lucky and anomalous, but my whole like professional ascendancy happened in my 40s. After spending 20 ages 25 to about 36 in LA, feeling like I was too old already. I had moved, I had grown up doing theater. I had done musical theater in uh, professionally as a kid and then in college and then in grad school. I was in England for grad school. And then I'm like a doofus. I moved to LA being like, let's go do sitcoms when, when what I should have done is gone to New York, but the universe got me back to New York anyway, in a, in a really itinerant way. But I spent a decade trying to sell myself in LA, trying to be the funniest, prettiest, skinniest, whateverist. And I distinctly remember an acting class I was in when I was 34 and the teacher was like, you know, you're too old, right? Uh, and, and it was, and I believed it. I internalized it. So the fact that I, that I had my kids in my forties, that I got on CBS Sunday morning and NPR in my forties, that I wrote a book in my forties, that in my forties, I was asked to turn my book into a play. And my husband pulled me aside the other day and he was like, baby, you're 50 and you're starring in an off-Broadway show in which you play yourself. Because my joke is like, w during the pandemic, I was like, when the show comes back, I hope I'm not too old to play myself. <laughs> and, and he was like, that doesn't often happen. And so I, I, I don't want any of us, by the way, looking at you two, you both look like, for whatever it's worth, because looks don't matter, but you're both gorgeous to look like you're 25. Um, <laughs> like, I don't want us women to keep like articulating the idea that age matters so much. Maybe it does, but I almost like, I don't want my daughter to ever hear me say that. Like no. for me, I just put blinders on. Age didn't matter for when I became a mother. It didn't matter for when I wrote my book. It doesn't matter for when I finally get to perform off Broadway. And I just want to hope that that kind of uh, improbable momentum continues for me. Here, here. Uh, That's so true. It's so hope, good. Faith. Yes, I know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. My husband keeps saying Rather, like, the best is yet to come. Yeah, yeah. If it they... is. Y'all are so young. When I listen to your podcast, Jessica, you're just talking about being 40 the other day. And I was like, <laughs> at 40, I wasn't even married or had a baby. <laughs> True. You're so young. When you're surrounded by actual <sighs> young people, though, eight times a week, <laughs> you okay, fair don't enough. feel oh. quite so young. <laughs> Okay, that's fair because I am only surrounded by our twenty-four-year-old nanny. And right. Every exactly. once in a while, I'm like, "Damn, I'm as old as her mother." When, when you when you work, <laughs> when you work with people who are like, "I was born in 1997," and you're like, ah, "Or or we have someone who was born in 1999." Or so. The, yeah, one of my stage managers. Was I'm fairly born certain in the year show It's born in the in the 2000s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, that, fair that enough. takes it into a whole different. <laughs> But you're, but you are giving like to hear that you have accomplished all those things 
post 40 is really exciting. Honestly, like coming from a very heartfelt position of someone who's kind of trying to figure out what like the next phase of my career slash life, what I want it to look like. Like that's really exciting to me to think that other things can happen besides this thing, this pocket of my life that has been just one thing, you know? I'm so glad it's exciting. It should be because other things can and will happen. 100%. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Well, you gave us the perfect segue um, to Approval Junkie. Um, I want you to talk us through it all, like the inception of the book. Y'all are giving me a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing too much talking. I I feel very uncomfortable because I'm used to interviewing people. And I'm like, I want to stop and listen to you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, we like the talking. You're way more interesting. Trust. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think I want to know about how it started, obviously how it evolved into um, a one woman show. But I think like, and correct me if I'm wrong, we all have, you're either an approval junkie or you're not. Like my friend has a daughter who is, could give two Fs about what anybody else thinks. And she's always so worried about her. And I'm like, she's going to be the happiest person in the world. Mm. Like she's just going to move through life, like doing what serves her. And, you know, maybe to detriment of others, that's yet to be determined. However, um, you know, I think that we have this thing in us that you're an approval junkie or you're not, you may think differently, but also the industry that we all are in, right? You said you went to LA and you were there for 10 years. Like being an actress is all about gaining somebody else's approval so you can get a job. That's exactly right. It's literally what you need to do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So- that's my little tidbit, but talk us through. Talk us through the the inception of the book and how it then became this one woman show you're doing right now. Um, I was I was getting my headshots taken when I was probably 27, and the makeup artist was named Teo. That would be T H E O, but pronounced Teo. Okay. And he just P.S. like read my tarot cards while he was doing my makeup and was like, "Wait a minute, you were so in L.A." Right? Oh, please. There's there's a whole part in my show about how I went to the acting guru in LA. Her name is Leslie Kahn. She is still out there. The Her acting studio, um, locals call it the Constitute. And, um, and, and, and she, I read my lines with her because she was like coaching me for an audition. And she looks at me so intently that I was like, oh my God, she's about to say, I don't know why you're not a massive star. And instead, she looks at me and she says, why aren't you as pretty as I want you to be? (gasps) So that is the like apex of an L.A. story. Well, let me add that my then my husband was then producing a TV show and he created a role for me and I didn't get it. No, I like like the like the role. The the character was named Hope. Like it was it was made (laughs) absolutely for me. And I didn't get my own role on the show my husband was producing because probably I wasn't pretty enough. But anyway, I was just throwing that in for how LA it all was. Um, and Teo looked at me and he was like, wait a minute, you're a writer. I was like, uh, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an actor. Like my friends are writers. I had so many friends from college who like were writing sitcoms at the time. Like I had, and, and I had my master's in literature. So my idea of writing was like, well, Virginia Woolf's a writer. Mm. Dickens is, a, the Brontes are writers. And it took me 
it took me, you know, 15 years to accept the fact that I am, among other things, am a writer. And I got to my early 40s and was so astonished at the happy endings that I had had been given to me um, and I had in, in some way achieved, also being very lucky. Um, you know, I finally found my beshert, as as they say. I I, lo- I mean, I'm I am married to a Jewish man, and I'm not Jewish, but I love dropping in the Hebrew and the Jewish. <laughs> uh, roll with me, um, and uh, and that I would finally figured out my fertility piece. I had come to peace with the loss of my mother, which which uh, pulled the rug out from under me when I was 26 years old. Um, just surviving Hollywood all the things. And I thought, okay, I want to write. I want to share my experiences. And I have so many different stories. Uh, Under what theme can I share them? Like they have to be organized. I'm not Tina Fey. Tina Fey can just write stories about her life because she's Tina Fey, right? Um, (laughs) Right. But I I need some kind of organizational idea. And I was like, oh yeah, uh, I'm an approval junkie. Like I have, these are the things, the beautiful, pathetic amazing things, um, embarrassing things I have done in the name of being heard and being seen and being loved. Um, and I thought, you know, for a certain type of very honest human being, that will be resonant. Mm. Um, so the book comes out in 2016 and on my mother's birthday, uh, which is August 29th, I receive an email, um, in 2016 from Susan Booth. Does that name ring a bell to either of you? Mm-hmm. She is the artistic director of the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. Oh. And she and I have never met. And she sends an email saying, this may be crazy, but I read your book. And would you consider turning it into a one-woman show for our 50th anniversary at the Alliance Theater? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Talk about fairy godmother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I, what Susan didn't know was that, I mean, she read my book, so she knew I grew up in Atlanta, but what she didn't know was like, the Alliance Theater was was Broadway to me. Mm-hmm. Twice a year, mm-hmm. I got to stay mm-hmm. up late and dress up, and my parents put me in the back of whatever gigantic 80s car <laughs> they were driving at that point, <laughs> and we got to go to the Alliance Theater, and I got to see a musical, and I got to see, uh, they, usually they took me to one Shakespeare, and the productions there are exquisite. It's like one of the best regional theaters in the country, and that's where I sat as like eight-year-old Faith, saying like, oh, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. Mm. And for her to invite me to come back to the place where it all began, like in my heart, to play myself after years of trying to get someone to pick me to play somebody else Mm. was just, and again, like y'all, my, my whole story is about striving. And this like this one thing was given to me. Yeah. I didn't have to like knock on the door and say, I just turned my book into a script. So that's yeah. how it began. And I still can't believe it. Like, who's this lucky? That's amazing. Knock yeah. Knock on the knock on the wood. No, yeah. that's just that's incredible. I mean, the we both know what that's like to search for approval and search for approval and audition and audition and audition and try to make yourself into something maybe you're not just figuring out what do they want me to be what should i be all these things and for someone to see you through your memoir to see to read the book and have such a reaction and a visceral response to want to extend that to you to say come be yourself 
and do this. And to have the faith in me that I would know how to turn a book into a play. Yeah. Oh my she really, gosh. She really laid it out on, on you, Faith. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I am forever indebted to Susan Booth, who is just a great human being in every way. And it's interesting because in my book, it, my gay best friend, Manfred, uh, introduced me. He and uh, John's gay best friend, Rob, and my gay best friend, Manfred, are the ones who introduced us to each other. So we say we were set up by gay date. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and it turns out that Susan and Manfred had gone to grad school together for directing. Um, wow. And, they, and their, their professor, and I put this in my book, their professor taught them to think of living, hold on, I want to get this right, nakedly human publicly. And, and the first time I met Susan in person, because she was up in New York Ooh. and we went out to dinner after I had said, I mean, I was not coy. I emailed her right back and was <laughs> like, are you kidding? Yes, I'll do this. I don't know how. I'll need help. But, yes. <laughs> but we went out to dinner and she like dropped the fact that, and Manfred, by the way, it's like my kid's godparents, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, was, our, was our best man. Um, and she's like, I went to school with Manfred and, and this is what our professor taught us. And that's what I try to do. To, and, and, you know, there's a cost. There's a cost of it. There are when you play yourself or when you are a commentator like I am or when you express your opinion and when you are a woman and when people don't like the sound of your voice or how big your forehead is um, uh, you, you, and, and you live nakedly human publicly like there are people who are not going to like you and it will live forever on social media. And yet, like, I'm not saying I'm brave because I'm not. I just don't know any other way to be same right same no i i that's what yeah i've said that before i think kara knows i have no filter but i don't know and also at this age i have zero x left to give you know what i mean like it's not worth it but i don't know how to not be an open book so i i get that i identify with that so it's interesting you say that because do people often say to you like this would come from people presumably who would not enjoy performing so people often say to me especially with a one woman show right 90 minutes no intermission about my life right they're like oh my god you're so brave and i and it's such a generous compliment but i i always say thank you and it does if that's not what it's about i don't i think that's doesn't fit that doesn't suit right like uh, it might be brave for them to go up on stage because that's not how they're built. But I just feel lucky. Like, mm-hmm. no, I want to say you're so generous. You put on pants. You decided not to watch Netflix. You showed up to hear my stories and sat there in a mask yeah. and 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 opened your heart to receive my stories. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, do you think you're brave? I guess we're all a little brave to go into this business, but it's not what I lead with. It sounds like patting yourself on the back for being so heroic. No, I don't think I'm brave. I mean, I definitely doesn't mean I don't have massive anxiety or agita when I speak about some things that I know are going to not be handled well, but I don't think of myself as being brave. I just don't know any other way to be. I talk a lot, so... Kara shared a dressing room with me for six years. She knows this. It's like, you know, I, I just, do, I do. Yeah. And I'm on the other end of the spectrum. Like I, certainly not, I, I'm definitely open, but I'm definitely not. Let me just tell you everything about me. Do you know what I mean? At the drop of a hat. I'm a little more reserved. Guarded, mm-hmm. I think. Well, then you reserved. get extra credit yeah. for doing this podcast. Thanks. Because you are. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I've shared more on, more on this podcast than I think than I ever thought. 
Well, you were talking about brave. It's like how we talk, talk to our son about being brave. We were talking about the word and, and we were like, being brave is doing something that scares you. If it doesn't scare you, it's not being brave, you know, because it's just something that you're going to do. And we're like, no, bravery is when it's some, when it's something that is hard for you or scary and you do it anyway, you know? That's exactly right. And I yeah, try to yeah. let my kids know through this very abbreviated rehearsal process. Um, we have three weeks of rehearsal and then only a four-week run. Um, for now, <laughs> can you knock wood again. Yes. Oh, yes. No. Or, or take – I would love to do the show in L.A. I feel like it would it would <gasps> oh, strike a different oh, chord there. Yeah. I'm sure. But, yeah. but I wanted my kids to know, even though I didn't see them much during the rehearsal process, I wanted them to know how – yucky and hard and excruciating it is how vulnerable it is again not making myself feel like a hero but they'll be like hi mama how was rehearsal and I'd be like oh I, w- I don't feel like I did very well today but I like it's hard like uh, my director Amanda Watkins who by the way I should completely credit with turning my book into a play because she had the vision that I didn't um, it, it, with a lot of post-it notes, a lot of post. It was like a beautiful mind. The post-it notes everywhere, figuring it out. But um, she loves sitting in the muck, the muck of creativity, where mm-hmm. you don't know the answers. And as the writer and performer, it's hard. It's hard to rehearse in a room where there's no spotlight, there's no filter. You just have the stage manager and the COVID supervisor and your director sitting there and they've heard all your jokes a million times and you're still trying to figure out your lines and you're blocking. It's so naked. And there were, I don't use the word sucked in front of my kids, but there were so many times I sucked and I wanted them to know that, right? That's, I think that's part of the being brave is like being so nervous Mm -hmm. and, but still being willing to make mistakes. It's Rosie Revere engineer. Mm-hmm. Y'all have that book, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Kara, do you have that book? Yes. Okay, just checking. I was gonna <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. I was gonna yeah, send yeah. it to you prime this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> we got it. Don't worry. Okay, phew. So I feel like there's this intersection, and correct me if this hasn't been your experience, but becoming a mother, right, is for me, I think shifted the appro- who I saw approval from. Yes. Um, it wasn't necessarily from my kids, but like approval of myself. Like it's a constant battle to be like, oh, am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? What am I doing? So it's less about the exterior, although that certainly has an effect, especially in the age of social media and the images we see of motherhood were constantly bombarded with this image of perfection. Um, but for me, it's been much less about that, but more about, oh my gosh, am I, am I doing a good enough job? So it's been seeking approval for myself yep. um, on motherhood. How, how has that been for you? You have a great quote um, in your book about, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to quote you right now. If you seek approval from someone who thinks it's hilarious to do downward dog in a diaper, diaper while he farts, you are an approval masochist. <laughs> So I assume you were talking about Augustus there, um, but talk yeah. a little bit about your need for approval and how it shifted during motherhood. Oh, it, it, it's such a time capsule when I wrote the book. Cause yes, my son was, was barely two and my daughter was a newborn. Um, and oh my God. I was, you know, I was <laughs> breastfeeding her with one arm and typing with the other hand. Um, I, oh, and by the way, I loved your interview with Elizabeth Stanley talking about all the different places one can breastfeed. I, I, I breastfed in a corner of the CDC. Well, I, I mean, not breastfed. I'm sorry. I pumped. I pumped oh. in a corner of the CDC 
I pumped in waders, W-A-D-E-R-S, when I was like doing a story on oysters. I was like in Cape Cod on an oyster farm, (laughs) like with, with, with the breast pump, I just all over the place. Um, I, I agree with you. There is nothing like motherhood to clarify what's important to you. And by the way, I want to be really conscious about this. I I would like to say parenthood. Um, I, 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 being a parent is as important to my husband as it is to me. I know that's not always the case. uh, And I think that's really sad. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I hope it's usually the case, frankly. Right. Um, My husband and I talk a lot about a lot about the parents we want to be. We have a FaceTime session with an incredible family psychologist who, who is our parenting coach. And we've been seeing her uh, for an hour a week for the past three years. And wow. it's, it's like, wow. it's, it's kind of instead of couples therapy, because we're, we're both there together. And frankly, if we ever have tensions, it's usually around who's doing what and how much are you doing? And, yeah. um, and a friend of mine she put it so beautifully. It's not, it's not about the kind of people you want your children to end up being. It's about the kind of parent you want to be to them, right? We don't have, we have very little control over who our kids become, really. We can, we can role model generosity, gratitude, silliness, purpose. We can role model all those things. But at least my husband and I are not the kind of people who are going to say our, our child's going to be a chess master or our child's going to speak five languages. I think we missed the boat on that. Um, (laughs) um, And every time I come back to what centers me is thinking, was I the kind of parent I wanted to be today? And by the way, that, and, and, and to, to your question, Kara, that is how I give myself approval. And I can tell you, again, I'm not a superhero, but most days I am the kind of parent I want to be. It's not, it's, as we know, it's not easy. It takes like, it takes preternatural amounts of patience, but part of being the parent I want to be, and I think this is, I, I want everyone to hear this. This is my absolute favorite quote about parenthood. It's from Jung, Carl Jung. The, the greatest burden on a child yes. is the unlived life yeah. of its parents. Yeah. Note yes. the pronoun. It's so weird that Carl Jung said its parents. Right. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, yep. don't, I don't know if he was a great dad. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like Gollum. Precious. <laughs> um, so maybe you've covered that, that on the show before, but I am the best mother I can be when my children witness me showing up for them and living my life. My children have, okay, fine. For four weeks, I don't get to put them to bed. They get to see their mother walk out the door to do her own Broadway show. Like, oh, sorry, not Broadway. Sorry, wishful thinking. <laughs> oh, Broadway. You're the ones you on Broadway. Speak it. Hey, speak put it, it in the babe. universe. Put, speak, speak it. it. Speak it. Speak oh it. God. I love it. But, but like, my, I, I just posted a picture of my son walking by a kiosk just casually walking down New York, New York city street on the Upper East side. And there's his mom on a kiosk. And I don't mean to be self aggrandizing. What I'm saying is like, holy, I won't say a bad word because of your mom, Jessica, holy (laughs) crap. (laughs) My children are witnessing their mother at age 50 have her dreams come true. 
Like, isn't that something to give them and show them? Absolutely. And it's something to show fellow mothers and fellow people and just, you know, to show people that you never have to stop dreaming. I think it's so hard, like we've talked about, after a certain age in this business, I know Kara and I are both struggling. Even though I'm working, I still am like, wait, but what's next? And who am I? And I'm over 40 now, and I'm not the chorus girl. And what's, you know, but I don't have the Tony nomination. I mean, it's all these things. And to just hear something like that, where at the age of 50, you have accomplished all these things in a span of like a decade, and, and this ultimate dream of yours that you didn't even know you had right? Like this was not something you even knew you had and it came and came to you. And that's gorgeous. That's beautiful. I love that. It really is. I wish I, who asked me this? Oh, I was doing, um, I was doing a little publicity thing and, um, for audible and they said, who, whom would you like to be at opening night? And I said, my daughter, who can't see the show because there are a few F words. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ruth, who is my 105-year-old friend, whom I talk about in my prologue. Well, and- I saw I saw Ruth going to vote on Twitter back when you took her. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. the first line. So when we returned to the show, we, we added a prologue. And that's the first line of the show. I say, in October of 2020, I took my 104-year-old friend Ruth to vote. And my daughter Minerva held her hand as she did that. And let's remember that like when Ruth was born, women couldn't vote. But the third person I said is I wish, I wish my mom, I wish my mom could be there. And I, and I just brought that up, Jessica, because of the, because of the way you just said that, like how, how beautiful it is to have this come true. And my mom died when she was two years older than I am now. And I, I talk about her in the show. She's just, she's infused throughout the show. Um, but it's, it's an amazing thing to reach what I hope is the middle of my life. And, um, and her prayer for me was, she wrote this, she wrote me a card a week when I left, since I left for college until she went into hospice. And she always signed off. She'd say, I pray for your peace, purpose, and happiness. And those are the last lines of the show that I, that I say to my daughter and that word purpose. I don't think I understood it when she was writing me in my early twenties. Now, now I get it. Like that's purpose transcends approval, right? When you're in your purpose, there's no need for any external validation and, and you're pumped with your own internal validation because life is clarified. Mm-hmm. Well, that was, I can't help but thinking in, in the telling of how this show came to be that your mom had a hand in it. I mean, that it was on her birthday that you got that email yeah. and yeah. that it was at the Alliance theater where she used to take you. I mean, and in all, you know, obviously our industry lost a great, um, contributor this past week, but everybody's talking about how he can now be at every performance, right? So your mom's there. There's no way she's not, you know, um, she's with you. Yeah. I just, I mean, it's funny that you didn't get the part of hope (laughs) in the, in the show your husband wrote or was Mm -hmm. producing, because I feel like that's all you have given me in this past hour that we've been speaking to you is hope. 
um, you know, hope to move forward and, and faith, faith to know that like things can continue and the pursuit of your dreams and our happiness is what's the most important, uh, and getting that purpose so we can show our kids that every day. Um, so thank you, Faith, so much oh, for being you. here and for talking to us and for sharing your truth. And you guys, if you want to hear more of Faith's story, you have to check out Approval Junkie. This comes out on Tuesday, so there'll probably be two weeks left of performance, correct? Oh, please. Yes, that's right. And also, it will be recorded for Audible, so it will be like available to hear as a play in the spring. But please come if you can. Come and sit in the theater and hear me talk to Ruth and my mom and my daughter. Yes, for sure. Oh, for I can't sure. imagine they w- they won't want to be flocking after hearing you just speak a little bit about it. Because now I yeah. can't wait to go. Yeah, oh, exactly. Oh my god! You know what? I know somebody. I can get you seat. <laughs> <laughs> I have to get my babysitter, but I will do right. it. I will pay for exactly. your babysitter. I would love to have you there. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Thank you so much, Faith. I hope you have a great so Sunday. This is I you know. Yeah, I have a matinee to do. Look how I'm yeah. so excited. I'm Look like, at that. <laughs> like, I know this is old hat to you, Jessica, but I'm like. All right, everybody, I'm going to my matinee. No, I love it. May we all have that much joy as we head to do our shows today. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's just, that's what it should be. It should be joyful. It should be fun. Yes, it's a job, but it should be joyful. And so I love your enthusiasm and I love it so much. And and I'm so happy that we were able to talk to you. So thank you so much. Me too. Thank you. You Y'all have cupcakes coming your way somehow. Ah, (laughs) Have a good one. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Mama's Talking Loud. Special shout outs to Justin Squiggs Robertson for our fabulous new graphic, Kristen Lopez, Bobby Lopez, and Justin Wardweber for our awesome theme song, and of course, the Broadway Podcast Network for bringing us to you. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.